2: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com/slash host.
3: An infamous killer on American soil.
4: They were greeted with a vision from hell.
3: The masterwork of a forging phenomenon. People
0: are fascinated to learn who is this Leonardo of counterfeiting?
3: and a blinding swarm of biblical proportions. It was clear that nothing was going to stop it. Within the walls of great institutions lie secrets waiting to be revealed. These are the mysteries at the museum. Known as the Sweetheart of Ohio, the city of Loveland is celebrated for its charming historic downtown and picturesque surrounding valleys. But beyond these peaceful lanes sits a place of intrigue, mystery, and secrecy. Housed in the stately home of collector Ken Klosterman, the Salon de Magie is dedicated to preserving the vibrant and captivating history of magic restraints belonging to Harry Houdini, a mask worn by Harry Keller, and a host of magicians' wands tell the story of those who have practiced the mystifying art of illusion. But one of the collection's most unassuming objects has perhaps its most electrifying story.
5: Uh, It's a foot and a half wide, 10 inches long. It's made of polished hardwood with two elegant metal clasps on its front. It looks simple, but it actually conceals a fascinating secret.
3: According to magic historian Gabe Fahori, this box was once used in a brazen attempt to quell a rising rebellion that threatened an empire.
5: To magicians, this is like the Holy Grail.
3: So what is this seemingly benign box? And how did it come to play a powerful part in a battle of magical might? 1856, France. Europe's greatest magician, Jean-Eugène Robert Houdin, is enjoying retirement from a career that catapulted magic to the forefront of popular entertainment for the French. For years, his illusions, including mind reading and levitation, had wowed the audiences who packed his private theater in Paris.
5: Jean-Eugène Robert Houdin was the father of modern magic. He's the man who elevated magic to a new level.
3: But in June, he receives an intriguing request from the court of his emperor, Napoleon III. The famed conjurer is needed not for a private performance, but for an unusual and vital mission.
5: Napoleon's looking for someone to go to Algeria and help him quell an uprising there.
3: Algeria is the jewel in Napoleon's colonial crown but a group of holy men called the Marabou are urging the populace to revolt against French rule. To establish their divine authority and thus gain the support of the tribal leaders, the Marabou have turned to magic.
5: The Marabou are trying to exercise their influence over the tribes by proving their control over nature, by demonstrating what we would think of as magic tricks.
3: But Napoleon has a plan to quell the uprising for which the great Robert Houdin is instrumental. Fight magic with magic.
5: Napoleon wants Robert Houdin to land in Algeria to prove that the French magic is more powerful than that of the Marabout. If he is
3: successful, Napoleon believes that the tribal chiefs will stay faithful to the colonial power. But it is a dangerous mission.
5: is essentially the emissary of the conquering country. He might as well have had a target painted on his back. October
3: 1856. Having arrived in Algeria, Robert Houdin gathers an audience of the most powerful chiefs in the country. As he takes the stage, he knows he must give the performance of a lifetime. He opens with relatively simple but entrancing tricks, like producing flowers, And an unending stream of cannonballs from a hat.
5: Things of that nature demonstrate his ability over various elements of the natural world. But then, with the
3: restless tribal leaders looking on, the master magician prepares to deploy a powerful illusion that he hopes will quash any thought of rebellion. Robert Houdin calmly walks to the center of the stage with this wooden box, now on display at the Salon de Magie he announces to the gathered Algerians that he has the ability to strip the most powerful man of all his strength. And he challenges the strongest among them to test this seemingly absurd claim. One well-built warrior steps forward. He bends down to lift the chest.
5: No problem. He's able to do it without any difficulty. Robert Houdan then tells the man he has just been robbed of all of his strength. Please lift the box again. The man reaches down. The box will not move.
3: The audience is
5: stunned. The man
3: stoops down again and grasps the handle, in a second attempt to pry the
5: box loose. He actually puts one foot on either side of the box, uses both hands, and tries to move it, and the small box will not budge.
3: Still grasping the handle, the man suddenly howls in pain and runs from the stage
5: in fear. The Algerian chiefs are shocked. Stealing a man's strength in that way certainly opens their eyes to a different reality. It shows that they don't stand a chance against the French. If one man can rob the strength of this warrior, then what's a whole army going to do?
3: Following this remarkable display of magical powers... 30 of the most influential chieftains present Robert Houdin with an elaborate manuscript praising his powers and pledging their steadfast allegiance to France. The magician's mission is a resounding success, and soon the nascent rebellion comes to an end. But as the story of Robert Houdin's victory begins to circulate, many are left to wonder, how did he pull off this shocking feat?
5: It seems the answer lies in the chest itself. It looks completely ordinary, except that the wooden box on its very bottom has a metal sheet attached to it. This
3: allowed Robert Houdin to employ a powerful new technology. He used electricity to create an
5: electromagnet underneath the stage. When the magnet is turned on by an off-stage assistant, the box is immediately attracted to it. And it's not going to go anywhere. When the voltage was ramped up, the magnet also produced
3: an electric shock, which is what sent the strongman running from the stage. It's masterful tricks like this that go on to inspire a generation of magicians, including perhaps the most famous conjurer of all, Harry Houdini. Houdini's stage name is an homage to Robert Houdin. And today, the light and heavy chest at the Salon de Magie continues to stand as a testament to the indelible power of magic and one practitioner's astounding ability to change the course of history. Film canisters containing footage of the arrest of Son of Sam, a flag recovered from the rubble of the World Trade Center, and evidence from notorious criminal cases. These are just a few of the items on display at New York City's Municipal Archives, where almost four centuries of the city's turbulent history has been meticulously recorded. But locked in the institution's archives lies one item that speaks to a sinister event that is still shrouded in mystery.
4: It is a 10 by 20 inch object weighing approximately three to four pounds. Uh, It's quite musty.
3: According to researcher Robert E. Anderson, this book's contents are the last hope of unlocking the truth behind a shocking century-old crime.
4: This is the only thing we have left linking us to one of the most gruesome murders in New York City history.
3: What does this tattered journal reveal about the identity of one of history's most notorious and elusive killers? April 24th. 1891, New York City. Police respond to a frantic report from the staff of the East River Hotel and discover a horrific sight.
4: They were greeted with a vision from hell.
3: Lying in a pool of blood in room 31 is the corpse of a slain woman.
4: She was found with a series of abdominal mutilations.
3: After interviewing hotel staff, Police identify the victim as a well-known local prostitute named Carrie Brown. The case is handed to the NYPD's chief inspector, Thomas Burns, who has reason to believe this is no singular crime. Over the past three years, five other prostitutes have been murdered in a distinctly
4: similar fashion. The mutilations of Carrie Brown showed some degree of surgical skill victim's abdomen was opened up, and the internal organs were removed.
3: But what perplexes Burns is that the previous murders happened not in New York City, but over 3,000 miles away in London, England. Those unsolved crimes are attributed to an elusive and psychopathic killer known only as Jack the Ripper. Now, Burns is struck by a very frightening possibility.
4: The question becomes, was this hunter now seeking prey in New York City?
3: Eager to unmask the killer, Burns interviews the East River Hotel's housekeeper, who says that Carrie Brown checked into room 31 with a male companion.
4: She described the gentleman as five foot eight, slim of build, fair complexioned, with a mustache.
3: And she reveals that he's known around the neighborhood only as Frenchie. Burns rounds up several suspects that share the popular moniker and fit the bill. But one stands out from the rest, a man named Arby LaBruckman. Just like the Ripper, LaBruckman knows how to wield a knife. He's a cattle slaughterman who plies his trade on board ships that sail between New York and London. And under questioning, LaBruckman makes a stunning admission.
4: Amazingly, he volunteers that he was arrested in London and faced trial on charges of being Jack the Ripper.
3: But LaBruckman beat the charges. Now Burns begins to wonder, has he finally caught Jack the Ripper? It's 1891 in New York City. While investigating the murder of a local prostitute, police draw a stunning conclusion. The killing is the handiwork of none other than London's Jack the Ripper. So has the Ripper really come to America? And can he be brought to justice? Inspector Burns believes that Arby Labruckman is his man. But the suspect's acquaintances attest that he was nowhere near the crime scene on the night of
4: Brown's murder. LeBruckman has a perfect airtight alibi. And so airtight that Burns actually just completely drops him.
3: Desperate to catch the Ripper, Burns focuses his attention on another suspect known as Frenchie, a French Algerian sailor named Amir Ben Ali. On the night in question, Ben Ali stayed at the East River Hotel in room 33, the room directly across from Brown's. But there's a problem. The dark-complexioned Ali does not match the description of the fair-skinned man seen at the hotel with Carrie Brown.
4: The description of the man checking in with Carrie Brown doesn’t jibe at all with the appearance of Amir bin Ali.
3: Despite this glaring inconsistency, Burns places bin Ali under arrest and he’s charged for the murder of Carrie Brown. In court, the prosecution introduces shocking new evidence that they say conclusively links the Algerian to the crime.
4: Police said they have found a trail of blood leading from room 31 to 33, and blood on the door outside of room 33.
3: It seems this damning information seals Ben Ali's fate, and he's found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. In the wake of the conviction, no other murders are attributed to Jack the Ripper, and citizens on both sides of the Atlantic breathe a sigh of relief, confident that the killer's reign of terror is finally over. But 11 years later, the case takes a stunning turn. While reviewing evidence from the murder scene, a group of reporters determine that the blood found in the hotel hallway and on Ben Ali's doorknob had been planted by
4: the police. Some elements of the press said this blood must have been planted there because when the reporters were allowed to inspect the area, we didn't see anything.
3: They suggest that under intense pressure to solve the crime, Inspector Burns framed Bin Ali. Upon learning these details, the governor of New York determines that Amir Bin Ali has been wrongly imprisoned and issues a pardon. To this day, the identity of the killer remains
4: a mystery. What happened to the gentleman that checked in with Carrie Brown the night of the murder? Could the mysterious customer truly have been Jack
3: the Ripper? The answer may never be known. Today, this scrapbook of articles and notes about the case, assembled by the trial's prosecutor, recalls how the streets of this metropolis might have once been the hunting grounds of one of the world's most infamous killers. Kennesaw, Georgia, located just 30 miles outside of Atlanta, was known as a booming railroad town during the 19th century. Fittingly, the city is now home to the Southern Museum of Civil War and Locomotive History, where exhibits feature antique train parts and mid-19th century clothing and weaponry. But one gargantuan artifact has always been the institution's primary draw.
6: This object is over 150 years old. It's made of iron, it weighs 31 ton, and can move at speeds of upwards to 50 miles per hour.
3: According to museum president, Dr. Richard Banz, this steam engine was once involved in an audacious covert operation that took place
6: right here in Kennesaw. This locomotive has about as much controversy and as much American history as any inanimate object could possibly have.
3: How is this train engine linked to one of the world's most extraordinary and daring heists? Spring, 1862.
6: The nation is in the throes of war. In April of 1862, the American Civil War was entering its second year. Many people had thought it would be quickly resolved.
3: But as the war drags on... Both the North and the South increasingly rely on a new system to move soldiers and supplies,
6: the railroads. Railroad technology was relatively young at this time. This was a machine of the future.
3: But a Union spy named James Andrews thinks he can use locomotives in a wholly different way to sow destruction
6: behind enemy lines. Basically, his idea is that if you could take over a southern train, You could then use that train to disrupt communications, destroy bridges, destroy telegraph wires, and to tear up portions of the track. Andrew's specific target is the line between Atlanta, Georgia, and Chattanooga, Tennessee, both very prominent Confederate cities in April 1862.
3: An act of sabotage such as this would cut off communication for the entire Confederacy. It is a dangerous scheme.
6: The idea of someone going couple hundred miles behind enemy lines and stealing a locomotive is quite daring, and it was incredibly risky.
3: But to the Union Army, it is worth the gamble. On April 12, 1862, Andrews and a team of Union soldiers covertly converge on Marietta, Georgia, where they wait for the next train, called the
6: General. At approximately 5.15 a.m., the train stops in Marietta, where Andrews and 19 of his raiders get on the train and they head northbound.
3: Their plan is to commandeer the locomotive during a scheduled breakfast stop at the town of Big Shanty, today known as Kennesaw.
6: So when the train pulled into Big Shanty, the announcement was made, Big Shanty, 20 minutes for breakfast. So all of the passengers disembarked the train. But Andrews and his raiders stayed with the train. The plan is in motion. Andrews and his
3: men enter the engine of the general, unhook all the passenger cars, and
6: steam northward. A few miles north of Big Shanty, Andrews stops the general. They disembark, and they do two things. They pull up one rail on the track, enough to disable some northbound traffic. They also cut the telegraph wire so that the Southerners cannot telegraph north, saying that this train has been stolen.
3: It seems Andrews has gotten away with the unimaginable. But unbeknownst to the spy, the general's conductor, William Fuller, is in hot
6: pursuit. Fuller is absolutely set upon getting his train back. And he's not going to let any obstacle stop him. So he decided to set out on foot.
3: Soon, though, Fuller comes across a southbound Confederate
6: train called the Texas. And the crew agrees to help him. The only problem is, is that the Texas was headed southbound, which means the Texas now has to pursue the general backward.
3: At full speed ahead, the Texas does just that.
6: And it it's at this point that Andrews and his men can hear the whistle, and they realize that they are being pursued. Can Andrews Raiders make it to
3: the Union line? Or will the Confederates recapture their hijacked train? It's April 1862, outside Atlanta, Georgia, Union spy James Andrews has managed to steal a Confederate Army locomotive called the General and is steaming towards the Union border. But the General's faithful conductor, William Fuller, is in hot pursuit, so can Andrews pull off this brazen heist? The Union Raiders quicken their
6: pace, but the Confederate train has an advantage. The Texas does not have any cars in tow, as the General's still towing three boxcars. And the Texas
3: is gaining on the General. Then, just 24 miles from Chattanooga, Andrews realizes he's made a catastrophic miscalculation.
6: The wood and water supply of the General is diminishing. He's running out of fuel. Andrews has to be nervous and he can hear that whistle.
3: In desperation, Andrews throws railroad ties and other items on the tracks in an attempt to slow the chasing Confederates. But nothing stops the Texas.
6: He continues to steam north, with the Texas now in sight on his rear. But
3: Andrews' raid is doomed. After 86 miles, the general runs out of fuel and comes to a stop. With the Texas bearing down on them, the cornered spies make a run for it but they don't get very far.
6: Confederate forces round them up and they're put on trial.
3: Some of the raiders manage to escape detention, while others are involved in a prisoner exchange. But Andrews and seven of his co-conspirators are found guilty and executed. But the hijacking goes down in history.
6: The very first medals of honor were actually awarded on March 25th, 1863, to six participants of the great locomotive chase. The chase becomes so legendary, it
3: provides the inspiration for the 1926 Buster Keaton film, The General. And miraculously, the original train still survives after
6: all these years. This is the actual locomotive that was involved in that chase.
3: Today, The General, at the Southern Museum of Civil War and Locomotive History in Kennesaw is a hefty reminder of the brave men who attempted one of the most extraordinary train heists in U.S. history. Fort Collins, Colorado. One-fifth of this city's landmass is occupied by Colorado State University, and located on this sprawling 5,000-acre campus, is an institution dedicated to the study of some of the Earth's smaller creatures the C.P. Gillette Museum of Arthropod Diversity. Its collection features over three million tiny bugs, bees, and butterfly specimens. But deep in the archives is one
7: long-forgotten insect that ravaged history. It's about uh, two inches long. Wings are a little bit longer. It's not particularly big. It's not colorful. It's what it did that was so unique. According to entomology professor
3: Whitney Cranshaw, This diminutive creature was responsible for a near-biblical wave of destruction. This was a terrifying event. It was scary. How did this insect bring about an unprecedented environmental disaster? 1875, Nebraska. For the last two years, a vast drought has afflicted the Great Plains, devastating the region's crops. Desperate farmers wonder if the rain will return before it's too late. A good rainfall
7: could have made the difference between making a crop or losing everything.
3: Eager for good news, farmers turn to a new organization charged with studying and tracking dangerous weather patterns, the National Weather Service. And the observer tasked with providing projections for Nebraska is a man named Albert Child.
7: Albert Child was an individual with a passion for weather. He would faithfully make his reports three times a day by telegraph sent to Washington, D.C.
3: On a blustery hot June day, Child is taking daily weather readings when something in the skies to the south catches his attention. His spirits are lifted when he sees what appears to be storm clouds on the horizon. But as the black mass moves closer, Child draws a harrowing conclusion. He's
7: not observing clouds, but a swarming mass of insects. The swarm consisted of an enormous number of winged grasshoppers, locusts. Child frantically wires his fellow observers to the east and west,
3: and they all report similar disturbing sightings. The dismayed meteorologist calculates that the swarm covers an area of
7: 198,000 square miles. The swarm of locusts was beyond comprehension. It was clear that nothing was
3: going to stop it. Families in the path of the swarm quickly descend into root cellars as the voracious predators consume everything in their path. They
7: would eat the crops down to the ground. They would eat the uh, harnesses off the livestock. They ate everything. As people brace for the
3: worst, many are left wondering, what has caused this epic plague of destruction?
8: Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's
3: 1875, Nebraska. Dr. Albert Child observes a harrowing sight, a massive swarm of locusts swiftly blanketing the Great Plains. The insects devour everything in their path, creating an unprecedented wave of destruction. So what has caused this apocalyptic event, and how will it end? For five days, the locusts feast upon the region. Then, finally, the insatiable creatures flee to the north. When the people of the Great Plains emerge into the light of day, What greets them is a scene of utter devastation.
7: The grain crops, they were gone. They were a total loss. Starvation was imminent. Over 150,000 people were without food. The real-time
3: reports of Albert Child and the National Weather Service spur the government to mobilize a massive relief effort. And they deliver over 2 million rations to the Plains families, who have been eaten out of house and home. In the aftermath, officials determined that the devastating swarm consisted of 3.2 trillion Rocky Mountain locusts, the same species on display at the C.P. Gillette Museum of Arthropod Diversity.
7: This was the largest aggregation of migrating insects that anyone had ever measured and ever will probably measure.
3: As the region begins to pick up the pieces, scientists and citizens alike are left wondering What was the genesis of this biblical wave of destruction? Scientists believe that the most likely cause was the severe drought that had plagued the region for two years. Without water, the fungal diseases that normally kill off large amounts of winged insects were nearly eradicated, allowing greater numbers of locusts to live to adulthood. The drought-like conditions intensified already strong air currents, allowing the swarm to cover massive distances at great speeds. Surprisingly, 25 years after the epic rise of the Rocky Mountain locust, the once-dominant species
7: dies off. To go from the most abundant insect ever seen on the planet to being extinct in 27 years is unprecedented. Some believe that as farmers
3: began tilling their fields more intensively to increase their yields, they destroyed the insects' breeding grounds, inadvertently bringing about the demise of their old nemesis. Today, this small specimen of the now extinct Rocky Mountain Locust is a fitting symbol of a harrowing natural disaster and a testament to the devastating power of numbers. Washington, D.C. The nation's capital is home to 75 landmarks celebrating the United States. But hidden in plain sight among these eye-catching monuments is an institution that prefers to go unseen, the headquarters of the Secret Service. Within its walls is a museum, accessible only to the agency's staff and select visitors. On display is a replica of a Secret Service badge a pen used by President Lyndon B. Johnson, and one of the first issued Secret Service handguns. But one artifact in its collection once sent Secret Service agents scrambling.
0: It is approximately three inches high, seven inches wide.
3: It's blurry in certain key places. According to Professor Stephen Mim, this bill once belonged to the agency's greatest adversary.
0: The Secret Service is genuinely befuddled. They're generally kind of baffled.
3: Why is this $20 bill so unique? And who was the criminal mastermind that wielded it? April 14th, 1865, Washington, D.C. After successfully reuniting the nation following the Civil War, President Abraham Lincoln has a new problem on his hands. Counterfeiting. The paper currency introduced to fund the war is easily faked, and criminals are taking advantage. To combat the threat, President Lincoln establishes a special task force, the Secret Service. The Secret Service is exclusively dedicated to
0: prosecuting counterfeiters.
3: Little over a decade after its founding, the agency's abilities are truly put to the test. April, 1879, New Orleans. A bank teller alerts the Secret Service to a very troubling discovery a fraudulent bill in their deposits. And when agents examine the banknote, they're stunned. The bill is perfectly
0: well done and is, is a masterpiece of illusion.
3: But under the gaze of a trained eye, its flaws are revealed. It's a little blurry along the
0: edges, and the red seal is a little off in terms of its dimensions.
3: The agents determine that unlike most counterfeits, which are printed by machine, the fine sketching on the bill's edge suggests this note has been made entirely by hand, with pen and ink. Soon, banks and retailers across the country alert the Secret Service that more of these notes are in circulation. The agency is determined to bring the counterfeiter down, but has little to go on.
0: They have absolutely no idea whatsoever who this
3: person is they have nothing and as word of this amazing currency spreads the public and press are caught up in the mystery people are fascinated to learn
0: you know who is this leonardo of counterfeiting
3: the press dubs the mysterious artistic criminal jim the penman so who is this notorious counterfeiter and can he be brought to justice It's the mid-1890s, Washington, D.C. For over a decade, the United States Secret Service has tried to track down an elusive master counterfeiter known as Jim the Penman, whose fake bills are so stunningly accurate, they're almost impossible to discern from the real thing. So who is Jim the Penman? Will he ever be caught? March 28, 1896. As night settles over New York City, patrons at a downtown saloon celebrate the close of the work week when a bearded man sidles up to the bar and orders a glass of wine. After a few rounds, the man prepares to leave, but then he suddenly stops.
0: As he's about to leave, he turns back to the
3: bartender, and he says, could you change me a 50? He places the $50 bill on the wet bar. When the bartender picks it up, he notices something unusual.
0: The ink is coming off. His bill betrays him
3: on the spot. Police are promptly alerted, and the fraudster is nabbed by a nearby officer. And he is soon turned over to the Secret Service. They identify him as a 49-year-old German immigrant named Emanuel Ninger. He confesses that he is the creator of the forged $50 bill and that he's made countless others. Agents soon realize they've apprehended the man they've been hunting for over a decade, Jim the Penman. But how was Ninja able to create such stunning duplicates of banknotes by hand? He was an artist. He worked for a little while as a sign painter. As it turns out, the key to his success was all in the details.
0: He would take a genuine bill, typically a 20, a 50. Then he would take bond paper that was very similar to the paper that the United States government used.
3: Ninja soaked the bond paper in coffee to give it an aged appearance. And while the paper is damp, it was nearly transparent. Then he placed the bond paper on top of a genuine banknote. And with pen and ink hand-traced every minute facet of the original note. As a final touch, he used a camel hairbrush to paint in the tracings. The painstaking work resulted in a nearly flawless forgery. Days after his arrest, Ninja is placed on trial for his crimes. But the counterfeiter receives unexpected support from the public when his bills become a desired collector's item. People actually begin to argue
0: that Ninja should not be convicted of a crime because the notes that he is creating are actually worth more than the face value of the
3: notes they imitate. Ninja is ultimately convicted and spends the next four years behind bars. In 1924, he passes away, but his legacy lives on. Jim the penman someone who
0: stands out as a genuine artist because what he created was in some respects almost better than the real thing.
3: Today, Ninja's forged $20 note is held under tight watch within the Secret Service Museum, a tribute to the skill and talent of a master criminal who some say created priceless works of art. Along the shore of Michigan's Sunset Lake sits the quaint 19th century village of Vicksburg. Once a major stop on the Grand Trunk Western Railroad, this town takes care to preserve its rich history. And no place carries on this tradition better than the Vicksburg Depot Museum. Housed in an old railroad station, this local institution boasts more than 10,000 historical items, from vintage train parts and road signs to an antique telegraph station. But one pair of objects on display looks like it belongs in a torture chamber rather than a small town museum.
9: One of these articles is made of metal. It's about four feet long, has very large teeth. The other item has a sharp metal point on the end. According to historian Dr. Ronald Smith, These sinister-looking implements served a chilling purpose. They are rather intimidating. They look somewhat like weapons. What part did these
3: tools play in an amazing invention that transformed the American dinner table? Chicago, 1875. The cattle industry is on the rise, and the famed Union stockyards are reaping the benefits. Quickly establishing the city as America's meatpacking hub. And one 35 year old entrepreneur is looking to cash in
9: on this lucrative trade. His name is Gustavus Swift. Swift was a very creative, very ambitious individual looking for ways to find expanded markets for his product. His goal? To extend his
3: meatpacking operation across the country. But his grandiose plan faces a major obstacle. The industry standard calls for live cattle to be
9: slaughtered after they're transported. The problem with that is that less than 50% of the animal is usable for meat. For the efficiency-obsessed Swift, this is unacceptable. So he
3: proposes a thrifty alternative.
9: His idea was to process the animals in Chicago and ship the dressed meat out to the East Coast. But the clever workaround poses a new problem. How do you transport meat
3: over thousands of miles without it spoiling? To Swift, the answer is clear, ice. But in 1870s Chicago, ice isn't something that can be bought in bulk at the supermarket. For the quantities Swift needs, there's only one industry that can help, ice harvesters. On frozen lakes throughout the northern Midwest, ice harvesters endure sub-zero conditions to cut out massive chunks of ice for use in
9: area businesses. It's simple but brutal work. These people that worked in the ice harvesting business were a very special kind of people. This was very dangerous work. The harvesting process itself requires
3: a few rudimentary tools, like this saw and pike on display at the Vicksburg Depot Museum. Despite the grueling conditions, ice harvesters from Wisconsin to Michigan are able to provide Swift with enough ice to put his plan into action. And to ensure the venture's success, he puts nearly all of his life savings on the line. Swift has butchered meat packed in ice, but when the train embarks on its first test mission, there's
9: a problem. He would pack meat in ice. But that didn't work very well because if you store the food in direct contact with the ice, it can damage the surface or interior of the product. What's more, the train ride is so long that the ice melts before it reaches its destination
3: and the meat spoils. Despite his best-laid plans...
9: Swift's new business venture appears to be on the brink of disaster. If he failed, he would lose his reputation, he would lose a tremendous amount of money, and he would essentially be on the street. The desperate Swift racks his brain for a solution. But can he find one before his
3: business has a meltdown? It's 1875 in Chicago. Meat-packing entrepreneur Gustavus Swift thinks he's discovered the key to national distribution, packing meat-filled train cars with ice. But on the long journeys east, the ice melts, and his precious cargo spoils. So what will it take to make Swift's ice-chilled dreams come true? One day, Swift meets with an engineer and poses an ingenious question. What if instead of trying to chill the meat, he chills the entire railroad car instead?
9: Excited by the prospect, they come up with an innovative design. The key to this system was to have uh, refillable bins where the ice would be stored at each end, and of course the cold air would drop down into the bottom compartment, circulate throughout the box car, and the warmer air would find a way to escape through venting. To ensure the car stays
3: cold, the ice compartments can be easily refilled with ice at harvesting stations along the way. And when Swift's design is built and put to the test, the gamble pays off. His new creation, one of the first known refrigerated railroad cars, is a resounding success, allowing him to expand his operation across the country. With fresh refrigerated
9: food more in demand than ever, the business of ice harvesting skyrockets. The use of these refrigerated cars created a tremendous job market for the people harvesting ice all across the country. Sadly, the boom is short-lived. As Swift's train cars become more prevalent,
3: newer, less labor-intensive technologies like electric refrigeration and artificial ice emerge. And by the early 1900s, ice harvesting is rendered obsolete by the very industry it helped spawn. Today, this saw and this pike, on display at the Vicksburg Depot Museum, remind visitors that while the practice of ice harvesting is long gone, the brave workers who took to the frozen lakes will forever have a place in history. From a prairie land plague to a mystifying magic act, Civil War sabotage to a Manhattan maniac. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the Mysteries at the Museum.
8: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus,